This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. All right, beer lovers, welcome back to another episode of Pints and Perspectives. We are here again with my friend, Andrew Barrett. Andrew, thanks for being with us again. Sure, I've switched gears to root beer now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we this is the second episode we're recording back to back. And normally, like Clayton and I will record, you know, four or five episodes in one sitting. Um, but we normally only do one episode of Pints of Perspectives. So we only have one beer. But because of that, I wasn't really planning on it. I don't have another beer. So another craft beer. So I have my trusty label High Life. Uh, so you all know and love my High oh. Life. I get, I, get your, I get your messages. Two beers in one sitting, folks. That's right. That's right. I'm a, I'm a heathen. I'm a heathen. No, no. No, I'm headed down the Noah track. That's just, I'm, I'm going for the Genesis. 10. No, you're just getting ready for your golf round. That's right. That's right. I'm just getting ready to go play golf. That is true. It's six o'clock. We'll be done with this and I'll be headed to the golf course. So decompress from the day. I and mean, then I'll come home, edit some podcasts. Got to do some reading. Got to read me some Walter Brueggemann tonight. So, Anyways, this is going to be the episode where we kind of wrap up um, this section of the God and Ethics series about marriage and divorce. And I just kind of want to do some, you know, now that I've got Andrew here and because here and here's something that before we jump into the episode, here's something that I want our listeners to hear is that, look, Andrew and I have both come to the text from very different experiences and still both to the best of our ability, trying to be faithful to the text. And yet, while we may have ended in pretty different places in reading the narrative, I think we're both almost identical in what it means ethically to be in a marriage. I think, I, I think that's yeah. probably pretty fair. Yeah, I, I think even with kind of different readings, and I, I texted you about this, that kind of our big point of departure was understanding the mass divorce mandate at the end yeah. of Ezra. Other than that, we're, we're pretty much tracking along the same line. And that's where I kind of wanted to live, particularly since you've been so candid about your experience and how that shapes your reading of that text. But the first thing that even a passage like that invites is, uh, suggests ethically, is a rigorous faithfulness to our marriages. Um, if, you know, so often when we talk about a Pauline understanding of marriage, we jump to basically the middle of Ephesians chapter five, but that whole section is in the context of Paul calling us to be imitators of God. And then a kind of subcontext is when he says all of us to submit to one another in reverence for Christ, but that's, that's secondary. So if we're talking an ethic of marriage based on the character of God, then starting point is aggressive faithfulness to our spouses um, within the best of our ability. Um, Because for as much as we've talked about divorce as the result of unfaithfulness, irreconcilable differences is at an all-time high as far as grounds for divorce. And gosh, the, the times God could have bailed on his people because of what we would consider, it's kind of anachronistic, but an irreconcilable difference. Uh, they, they barely made it a handful of miles into the wilderness before they built a golden calf. So, you know, uh, 
we got to do better than that. And Christians do, because unfortunately the cultural statistic is a coin toss. The marriage is going to work or it's not going to work either which way. And the same goes for Christians. And it's, and in all 50% of those ain't because of unfaithfulness. Right. Um, so a rigorous faithfulness to our spouses, even in moments of intense marital um, distress, like you, like you good and well know, but where we've got to land is only God can be faithful to unfaithful people the way that he was. That at some point we've got to be willing to, for those of us who do experience like what you've experienced and what you're still having to work through in a very real way that imitators of God. And I know you're doing uh, Genesis three or Genesis one and two, sorry, on, on your new story series talking about fruit imitators of God and trying to be like God in the Genesis three sense are not the same thing. And it's a surefire way to set us up for um, pain. We are not intended to experience. Um, I think that divorce grieves God. Yeah. Not only do I think that he hates it. I think it grieves him because of what marriage is meant to embody and symbolize. But I also think he gets unfaithfulness and he does not expect us to be him as far as faithfulness is concerned. Well, I actually think, and for me, that's actually why I read Jesus's words the way I do is because Jesus says, look, here's, you know, paraphrase by Cullen. I, I actually think what Jesus is saying is, look, I don't want anybody to get divorced. But if there's anybody that knows the pain of being cheated on, it's me. And I know that that's an impossible ask for most people to get over. Yeah. And so I give you an out. Because that's the other thing. Jesus never commands, nor does the Old Testament command that if adultery happens, you must divorce. Now, right. there is that text in Jeremiah that if you divorce, you can't remarry them. Yeah. You can't ever marry them again. Yeah. But God never commands that if they're unfaithful, you must divorce. He just says, hey, I know this pain better than anybody, and I don't expect you to be able to get over it the way that I do. Yeah. And so at one level, because I don't know that y'all have talked about this in this series there's a version of this that's less about marriage and more about even getting engaged. Um, you know, marriage weddings have become a pretty sexy social media item. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people not prepared for this level of faithfulness should not even bother getting engaged. Like if you're not ready for this grind, do not get married. Um, because boy, you want to know what's worse than a hard breakup, a divorce. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. And Hunter and I had broken up twice before we got married. So, you know, ethical standpoint, uh, I've heard y'all call marriage a sacrament. Um, it's certainly one of the most powerful symbols we have for Christ's relationship to his church, God's relationship to his people. It's, it's a symbol we see in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah. Um, do not step on holy ground lightly. Yeah. 
No, I would agree hundred percent. And so perhaps, you know, I don't think that I've said this more than once. I don't think that counts for nothing with our skyrocketed divorce numbers is people who have no business getting married, getting married. And I'm not talking about like shotgun weddings and stuff like that. I'm just talking about people who, for one reason or another, maturity expectations. And I've, um, I recently got certified for a premarital counseling. I had to do some premarital counseling with a couple at our church. We're still doing it. And um, I got certified through this thing called prepare enrich, um, which is a, it's been really helpful. Texas but, has a version of that called uh, together forever. TWA, yeah. Together. So the thing they do, I promise this is related is before I start any, what they call feedback sessions, the couples have to fill out a, inventory of all kinds of things, culture, ethnicity, family system, personality tests, that kind of stuff. One of the things the inventory accounts for that I think is really, really interesting is what they call idealistic distortion. There's a series of ridiculously overgeneralized questions that they ask in this inventory, like all of the problems my fiance and I have now will go away when we're married. Like that kind of overgeneralized things where depending on people's answer to that, they can tell you if someone is idealizing their relationship. And so they account for that so that I can interpret it and give feedback as necessary. But I think we've got a whole lot of couples with idealistic distortion as far as what marriage looks like. Um, I, I will, you know, I won't have this problem when we get married or we'll come to the same place. We'll come to an agreement on this when we get married or this will get better when we get married or maybe when we have kids, this will get better. And with each and every couple that discovers that that's not true and then they get divorced, I just feel more and more serious about, man, just don't get married (laughs) if if that's where you're at. I think so much of that is, and once again, this may be my cynicism showing, but I think so much of that is, hey, I'm, I'm immensely attracted to this person. I feel this immense connection. And yet whenever I engage in any kind of sexual intimacy with them, I feel immense guilt and shame. Yeah. And so if I could just get rid of all this tension I have sexually and get rid of this shame I feel when yeah. I get married, all of our problems are going to go away, which is just not true. Yeah. Also, if it looks like I've got this, you know, shadow side going, it's because we're on the East Coast. Yeah, my natural light is fading. Yeah. Um, Andrew's in North Carolina, so it's seven fifteen his time. It's about to be dark. Yeah, yeah. Um, that just, uh, yeah, that kind of stood out to me. Even gathering notes here and even listening to y'all, I think your perspective on mar- on you know the sacramentality of marriage is a little higher than mine. Though I'd like to think I take it really seriously, even if I don't, you know, is marriage a means of grace? I don't know. It's certainly a symbol of it. Um, but do you, you don't have any, like, you wouldn't be sacramental in anything, would you? You know, I just think Paul, it's interesting. This, I, I'll try to keep this brief. I was reading uh, the, the final volume of Church Dogmatics, as a matter of fact, and Carl Barth was expressing- oh, Carl why he did not think calling baptism a sacrament was appropriate. And his perspective was because the baptism is not what saved you. It's not the way that you received grace. 
Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is. And so for him, he didn't want to call it that because it's the classic, so that no man should boast kind of thing. Like you didn't get saved because you got baptized. You got saved if you're Karl Barth, because in 33 AD, Jesus died and rose from the dead. You know, that's his yeah. classic joke of that woman asked him in a Q&A, when did you get saved? And he said, 33 AD, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. Yeah. a wonderful answer. So, you know, I just, yeah. it's, I think, Jesus Carl saves. Not a good reader of Romans six. That's all. I, th I think a good reader of Romans six. Yeah, Jesus saves. The Spirit imparts grace, but the Spirit imparts grace through all kinds of means, and so that's where I am. Uh, anyway, that's that's aside. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I just I come out of seeing God's self-boundedness, as it were, yeah. to this aggressively flawed people beginning right after Genesis 12, one through three, as an entreaty to number one, as best as we are able, emulate that faithfulness in our marriages. Yeah. And number two, do not get married until you are prepared to emulate that faithfulness in our marriages. And perhaps number three, and you can tell me where I'm at on this one, do not get married unless you are remotely prepared to experience the pain that might come from it not working. Yeah, because um, you have to think God in Exodus 19, when he's when he is binding himself to this people and depending on your view of foreknowledge, you may really have to think this, that he knew good and well what this was going to mean for him. Yeah, uh, I think so. Well, yeah, it. I mean, yeah, the question really there is about foreknowledge. Um which don't, don't listen and don't think that's a question removed from this conversation. Um, get, get cheated on and then you'll figure out that, well, actually you, because in the moment, I mean, well, you were at my wedding. I was not. We did not know each other when you got married. No, you were at Hunter's graduation. Yep. That's the first time I met you. Well, technically it was her like her pinning white stuff. coat ceremony or something yeah, pinning ceremony yeah so uh but that was i don't know what so that was december of 2015 see so, yeah, i've been married for a year and a half before i met you that was a pandemic and a couple of presidents ago <laughs> yeah that's quite a while ago um and three kids between the two yeah, of us three holy cow yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, I think it's, I look back on those moments and every person I had ever confided in, every person I considered to be a spiritual authority, a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father in my life, looked at me and blessed my mm. coming marriage. Mm -hmm and told me that it was good and what they thought God wanted. I did not have a single person tell me you should not get married. Mm -hmm. And yet look where it landed me. Right. Um, and maybe so, that's why we just need to be quick to clarify for any divorced here, listeners or viewers, you know, it, it's so easy to get retrospective in these seasons and think maybe I wasn't ready that kind of thing. And I, 
if I overstated before, I did not intend to. That's not what I'm suggesting is, you know, if, if you're getting divorced now, it's because you weren't ready when you got married. Right, if yeah. anything, it's just the number should encourage us to make sure. And to your point, you sought discernment from others, which I'm crazy dependent upon is the affirmation of others. Yeah. Um, I think you were ready to get married and to, you know, look where that ended up. I just think that's where, if you think this is a punt, you with a capital Y, yeah. not necessarily you, though maybe you, I think that's where we just have to, um, you know, kind of revisit the whole life's not that simple. Yeah, I, I think it, yeah, a fair, very fair. I, I'm going to, I think I would, this is not a good video podcast moment. But. Yeah. I think I was more than ready to get married, but you could have asked at 15 years old, I could have told you exactly what I wanted my life to look like. Mm. And I told Hunter that. And I headed down a road to get me what I wanted and what she had told me she wanted as well. And I, I was one of the only people I know that never changed my major in college. I was one of the only people Good I for know. You. Yeah. Did you change your major? No, but I changed my like career trajectory. So Okay. So I, I was one of the only people I know that did a, like an adjunct degree and knew that I wanted to do that from the beginning. I, I mean, I could have told you at 14, 15 years old what I wanted out of my life. I don't think Hunter could do that. I think she had an idea. And I just think she wasn't, I think she wasn't ready to get married. Mm. Um, and so it landed me in a bit of a predicament seven years later where she cheated and, and left and, and honestly has left faith, doesn't want to identify as a Christian, doesn't have any of those desires um, at this moment. Let's not say they would persist. But um, at some point you have to look at it and go, and this is, this is kind of the question because we can, we can look at the text all day long and say, hey, the command is for you to stay here. The command is for you to pursue her. The command is, you know, to be the character of God, prodigal son. I mean, the, the, the ways that you can make that go on forever are literally endless. Yeah. But I think each and every one of us have to come to a question where we answer or come to a place where we answer the question, does what I'm currently doing continue to reflect the character of God best that's embodied within me being made in the image of God? Mm -hmm. And if you can't answer that affirmatively, yeah. yes, then it's time to go, I think. Yeah, this For was me, a great I, point that you made when we talked while you were here. And I think it's congruent, if that's the right word, with what... Paul is implying in 1 Corinthians 7 that at the end of the day, this is why he encourages some people to not get married, period. At all, yeah. Your ability to be faithful to God in Christ by the Spirit takes precedence over literally everything. Yeah. And that shockingly includes unhealthy marriages. That at some point, um, and we worked through this, and I'm sure some of your listeners, viewers have worked through this with their own friend groups, whatever. At some point, 
after having tried to imitate God's faithfulness to his unfaithful spouse as best as you could, we have to be willing to remember that we are not God. Only God is capable of these things. Only Christ is capable of taking on the sins of the world. Only the spirit is capable of enduring these prayers that are so painful and deep that they can't even be put to words. And it becomes an act of, I don't know, self-care almost seems like understating it, but it just outright refusal to be scorned, embarrassed, humiliated, hurt, especially when it's influencing your ability to be all the other things that despite this enormous pain, God is still entrusting you to be. Because that's what we talked about. And I don't think you liked the first time I put it this way, but that you've got to be somebody yeah. on the other end of this. On the other side of this, yep. Well, I remember you, you, you telling me like, and part of it was, and I think you knew it. I mean, I was deep in depression. Yeah. Suicidal ideations. I mean, the whole thing, just, I was deep in depression. And I just remember you saying like, look, you've got to be somebody on the other side of it. Your kids need you to be somebody. Wellhouse needs you to be somebody. Like there are people that need you to be somebody on the other side of this. And things that, by the way, I, things that, God also wants you to be. Yeah, you know, in addition to God wanting you yeah. to be a faithful spouse, being an imitator of God also means being a faithful father. Being an yeah. imitator of God also means being a faithful shepherd. Being an imitator of God in the triune fellowship also means being a faithful son. Yeah. Well, and that, that's what I would say to our listeners is, you know, we, I've gotten a lot of people reach out to me and they're listening to the podcast and, and the series and they're trying to jump ahead. And what what I would say to you is, Look, I don't think that divorce is some kind of unforgivable sin. I said it on last week's episode or two episodes ago. Like our board is made up of divorced people. Like divorce is not going to disqualify you from anything at Wellhouse Church. In fact, if, if I might be so bold, you're more likely to be passed over for positions at Wellhouse Church if you're an asshole. Like if, if you're just a... If, if you're just a, a kind person who's been divorced, okay, cool. Um, if your personality reflects the character of God, I don't care about your past. Just like we all make mistakes. And I don't think that divorce means you must enter this life of solitude. I, don't, I mean, I just, I don't think that. I think that divor- divorce doesn't mean that you must go about not being happy anymore. But I would also say that marriage as I've said, and I think Richard Hayes does a really good job of pointing out is that marriage is an element of disciple making. Mm. And so for me, and this is the question I had to wrestle with narratively is at, at what point does my marriage and the cruciformity I get from suffering through this mitigate my walking as a disciple of Christ in every other area Mm. because those things can impact who you are as a person they can impact who you are as a father they can impact who you are as a you know a worker that they impact every area of your life and so at, at what point is me trying to do this one thing sacrificing the 99 things God's asked me to do yeah 
And at what point does that become a detriment to my overall wholeness and healing as a human being made in the image and likeness of God, pursuing the image and likeness of God? Right. And yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. That's a great (laughs) point. I I was looking up because Hayes, I don't have my copy of the book, but he has such a, a great line about remarriage and what it could mean. It's worth reading. Um, is to your point about you don't have to be some hermit. And in fact, a remarriage, which I am the beneficiary of, my parents are each other's second spouse. He says, if one purpose of marriage is to serve as a sign of God's love in the world by symbolizing the relationship between Christ and the church, how can we reject the possibility that a second marriage after a divorce could serve as a sign of grace and redemption from the sin and brokenness of the past. Yeah. I don't have a page number for that, but I know it's from his, his chapter on that. So we want to affirm, I think y'all have made this affirmation and I want to make it too. I feel about divorce, how God does. I don't like it. Would even venture to say I hate it because even though I have not personally experienced it, I have seen what it does to children of divorce and what it does to spouses. My dad, who's been married to my mother for, I think, 36 years. I really ought to know the answer to that question. They've had three sons, two pastors, a CPA committed to overseas missions, yeah. who's, you know, all of us, I think, are in good places. Yeah. Uh, they're each other's second spouses. Yeah. And my dad, to this day, talks about his divorce as one of the worst seasons of his life. So objectively speaking, he has a wonderful life because he got divorced and he still looks back on that as this miserable season. Um, So these two things can be true at once, but, but boy has God been gracious in his second marriage. And so for people for whom I know many people, my wife's grandmother is one of them. She was cheated on by her husband. She stayed single for the rest of her life. Yep. And that's true for a lot of divorcees. For folks who can't do that, which I've said, I don't think you can do that <laughs> for, yes. for whatever it's worth. Um, uh, yeah, I, I remember. Well, and when you're going through that much trauma, it's easy to go, well, look, I never want to feel this again. So I'll just stay yeah. single. Yeah. And the ways that you deal with that in trying to stay single. Yeah are really revealing of what the actual course trajectory of your life and what you're capable of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I'm capable of never marrying again. Right. I, and I think the- you said, I think as, as you said, I'm a giver, I'm naturally a giver. I want to give to someone else, which if you're not in that kind of marital covenant, it's hard to give at the rate that someone wants to give at. Sure. And so I think the encouraging note there is that if divorce is a death, the gospel is that death does not have the last word. And perhaps second marriages that get it right, that atone for previous sins, and that ask for grace along this this way a second time, have an opportunity to embody in a very real way that Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. 